0: Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have returning to the show for the second time, Dr. Rich Little. How are you, man?
1: Good. How are you, look?
0: I'm good. You're in uh, Southern California today. Yep. And uh, you've got your accent still. Hasn't gone. You know what's weird is that I have, like, a niche of, like, Australian friends from the podcast. Like, I, I don't know why that one particular location has become, like, the second home for the podcast, but I don't know. what. Do you have any ideas why Australia and I get along so well?
1: Um, you know, Australians are very kind of laid-back people, and uh, they don't take themselves so seriously. Um, and they've also got an accent that I think Probably resembles, uh, or at least is, is an accent that a lot of Texans envy. So I'm, I'm <laughs> sure,
0: I'm sure there's a connection there somewhere. <laughs> I, I've had a leap, yeah, yeah. There's, I, I think it might be the accent. Now there was one Australian guy on here named uh, Joel who talked about how he lives in New York now, but he said that Australians are really just jealous of America. They just don't want to admit it because they're like a small country and America's big. I don't know. Anyway, we don't need to talk about that. I mean, i was just throwing that out there. Yeah, I'm going to have to correct
1: that Aussie because he's, he's very unpatriotic. Um.
0: Yeah, well, he he's sold out. He lives in New York now, so you can send your email to him if you want. So, um, all right, we're going to talk about a fun subject. Well, I don't know if it's fun. It's an interesting subject to me. So... Um, For people who don't know, Rich was on probably a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago. You were on a podcast a while ago, right? Yeah. It was a while. And uh, so during that conversation, we talked about how you were my freshman Bible class teacher when I was just a 17-year-old freshman at Harding University in Searcy, Arkansas. Yeah. Which, um, let's do the math on that. That would have been 18 years ago. Eighteen yes, years ago, right. this month. Um, yeah, that kind of makes me sound really old. Like, yeah, but yeah. you still
1: look seventeen.
0: Well, thank you, Rich. I appreciate that. <laughs> That's really nice of you to say. <laughs> Sorry. It's all, You are the first person to ever say I look young. First time it's ever happened. And uh, okay, so you like were in a lot of ways like the paragon of the kind of Christianity that I went out of high school, off to college wanting to experience and emulate. You were like freshman Bible class teacher. You walked around with your shoes off. You had us color code our Bibles with different steps of verses to get to. Um, do you remember that?
1: Yeah. yeah uh, we, we, uh, we mapped out the five-step plan to salvation, baby.
0: Yes, yes. Color-coded.
1: Here, it was. Repent, confess and get baptized.
0: Yep, you had it. And I had in my Bible, there was a, a color-coded, it was like, choose your own map. Obviously, the map was to heaven. Um, yeah. and Please you
1: texting <laughs> <laughs> That class was called,
0: <laughs> okay, but you were there, you left, uh, Harding and then you went off to Chicago, did some, was it your doctorate there? Yeah. Right? PhD. Yeah. Your yep. PhD. Excuse me. PhD. <laughs> and then, uh, obviously you migrated out to Malibu, which was, um, that was probably the smartest thing you've ever done. Left Cersei, went to Malibu. Good move. Well done. <laughs> um, Getting and closer so, to home. Yeah, 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 you're getting closer there. And so you went from uh, a very conser- conservative kind of Christianity to a more inclusive, forward-thinking yeah. flavor of it. You're preaching at a church in Malibu. And then um, a while back, you resigned, and uh, I guess you just made it public um, on Facebook a couple weeks ago. Yep. And and I'd heard this months ago that you'd stepped down, and then you finally made it public, and I thought, I I want to talk to you about this. and so uh, give me the actual dates I kind of screwed that up you, February you actually resigned you stayed on for a few months
1: yeah I gave, uh, I gave the leadership notice in February and mm-hmm. um, and I, I said look I, I understand if um, if you want me to step aside now um, I'm happy to continue working on longer and, and they were just so gracious they were like no we want you to stay through the end of the semester uh, help close the school year out so uh, I continue preaching through may um, so at, at three months after I basically gave my uh, my notice uh, I stepped aside
0: mm-hmm. and if i'm correct it doesn't sound like there is a next step that you're hundred percent sure that you're stepping into like you, you don't have a a uh, like you're not leaving to become the director of Sony Entertainment or something <laughs>
1: No, um, although it's an interesting transition because um, when you're moving from full time clergy and you're looking to move into either the nonprofit sector or the for profit sector, there's a lot of suspicion um, that comes with, um, you know, with moving from the clergy into that kind of role. Uh, people are concerned about the baggage that you might carry, they don't understand really? your story. Yeah. Uh, there's been a, a couple of fairly big nonprofits that you recognize their names if I told you. Um, that I've been talking to I had a headhunter who um, who basically uh, ran me through the process to be CEO of a of a big nonprofit here. Got all the way down to the uh, final interview. Uh, we did uh, an on phone uh, a, a conference call to prep for that interview. she got back with me later. She said, "Rich, I I I don't know how to tell you this. She said, but." Everyone on the committee is excited except two people, and they're really concerned um, about your ability to separate your religious background and the degree to which that may influence or colour your role as CEO of this nonprofit. I didn't even have a chance to sit down and, and kind of explain my story because I, I think they they would feel very comfortable had they heard that. But yeah. the the perception of ministers is often coloured by the media, and um, they're concerned about hiring someone to be a CEO who's anti this, anti that, uh, against this, against that, and, uh, and, and that might potentially color their management style um, and then the way they represent the business. Wow. So, so yeah, so that's being hard. Um, I've always had interest in real estate, so I am actually working uh, toward getting my real estate license right now. I've got a friend who works with affordable housing and we wanna do some creative things to help people who are homeless um, in Southern California. So, I'll be sitting for that exam next month. um, And also talk to UCLA about uh, an adjunct position there. I am still teaching at Pepperdine. Okay. So, I'm still an adjunct prof at Pepperdine. I'm an adjunct prof at Wheaton. There's an adjunct role that's a possibility at UCLA. And then, um, uh, if uh, uh, once I get my real estate license, I'm just going to pursue that hard, but still entertain other possibilities Mm -hmm. uh, for the nonprofit sector as they come up.
0: Yeah, well, it doesn't surprise me that. You know you're gonna land on your feet. You're a gifted person, and I know you know whatever you do, you're you're gonna find success because you know you're just a capable person. But you, you leave a job, uh, and obviously you've got some ideas, but you're not like, hey, I I've got the next step already right. written in stone. You decide right. Y- right. you've got to leave, which I'm I'm assuming as a as a pastor for many years, you've had to give some life coaching to people about you know careers and transitions. This doesn't seem like the kind of advice you would have given to someone, correct? Uh,
1: no, my advice is never take one jacket off until you get another one to put on. I mean, that, that's, that's yeah. Life Coaching 101. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, but there's two exceptions to that rule in my mind. Um, the first exception is if you are in a role um, that, that doesn't meet three criteria, and, and the, the three criteria that I have in knowing when to make a career transition is uh a if you just don't feel like um you can with integrity align yourself with the system or the organization anymore there's a, there's a lot of um disequilibrium there a conflict there uh b if uh the the if the leadership doesn't buy into your vision mm-hmm. and c if it's not fun
0: you Okay know, so and, which and was this integrity leadership or no fun
1: Um uh, I would say uh, one and three. I think mm-hmm. uh, for for me, the leadership of the University of Church is amazing, phenomenal. I, I love the leaders there, and we had a very common vision. Um, so that wasn't a a, a a big factor. For me, it was a systemic issue and then just the, the, the satisfaction slash fun issue that I think comes more from my own journey and, and my own views on religion and spirituality and, and the journey that I'm on. So I think if, if, if those things, if those three criteria present themselves in someone's career role, um, then I think you've really got to consider what's next. And, and uh, for me, I've been in there for a year by the time I actually gave my notice uh, saying I- I've, I've got to step out. And we've got resources, I mean, just personal resources that made it doable for me mm-hmm. to be without an income for six, nine months um and so we've been fortunate in that regard other people would obviously be in a very scary position if they did that so it's not universal advice but if the conditions are right then i think you've got to take a step uh the other reason i think luke as well is i knew if i didn't do it i might never do it so Hmm. forcing myself to step out forced me to look for something else because it's one thing to stay in a role and say well I really don't want to do this. I'm just going to kind of look for something else. Well, odds are you're never going to really aggressively pursue something else. What's going to make you aggressively look for something else? When you have no income,
0: then you're you're going to to
1: aggressively look for something else. So that was a game I had to play with myself in order to push myself on.
0: Yeah, so obviously that that role you took where you were uh, performing a wedding in a major movie, Uh, provided you the resources where you didn't have to work because you became a (laughs) movie star. Uh, That's right. But there is a level of integrity that if this isn't where you are 100%, to step out. And I I talked to a a guy on the podcast a while back uh, who's a comedian there in North Hollywood, and he was curious as to how many pastors didn't fully buy in or believe um, in what they were talking about anymore but just stayed in it for the comfortable lifestyle. And yep. obviously that would have been an easier thing to do. I mean, to stay there. But you said like your journey didn't, didn't, didn't let you stay there. And so I'm curious yep. as to kind of like you, you said in the, you posted on Facebook about how um, there wasn't one sh- like final straw that, that caused you to do this, but I'm assuming right. there might've been a final straw, but there was a first straw and a second straw and a third straw that all compounded to cause this. So as you're thinking about like right. your journey, what are those, like, what are the bigger things that, that made this such an uh, important thing that you had to do?
1: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, just to just that earlier comment, I think a lot of ministers stay in roles that, that they are entirely unhappy with, but they just count to the motions. I really believe you that. Do. So many people send me private messages on Facebook or ministers saying, Rich, I'm there and I don't know, I don't know what to do.
0: Give that, me a percent. What percent do you that, really think are there? Are we talking Um, over under 30%? Oh,
1: definitely over 30%. I I would say, yeah. um, And ministry uh, is one of the things that can create more insecurities and low self-esteem than anything else, because you're never going to make everyone happy. You're always going to be battling against systems and boundaries that you want to challenge and push. And if you take your personal satisfaction and assessment on numbers and growth, which I think is wrong, I think that's 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 the, the Western uh, American barometers for success. Um, then you may always a feel like a failure, b feel like uh, you're under the microscope constantly, and um, and c not really have the job satisfaction that you want. But you still love the Lord, you still love God, and 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 so you you, you go through the motions. And mm-hmm. if you don't have Uh, A support. Then who do you speak to? You you really can't talk to your elders about that because they're they're your bosses. You don't want to talk to the ministry staff about that because they're the ones who are supposed to be looking up to you. And so it gets to be a really lonely place. And that's why people. That's why fourteen hundred ministers leave the ministry every month in America. I mean, that's that's an astounding number. Uh, But to your later question, for me, uh, I started to deconstruct my faith uh when i was in grad school probably back in 2000 and i slowly started to 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 pull off the uh the, the structures of my faith that i'd inherited that had just been basically dropped on my foundation and um and my view of the church my ecclesiology expanded exponentially um i didn't see my tribe as being the only tribe mm-hmm. um And then over the last 16 years, I've I've frankly had some pretty big questions um, about the the religious system. And if our goal as as ministers is really to love God and love others, which I think it is, um, then we're trying to do that in a system that we inherited um, that doesn't lend itself to doing that well. And, And you've got to make a decision to either continue pressing against those boundaries and trying to to reform from within, or step out and say my my mission is going to continue somewhere else, but I can't be um, I can't be hogtied by those boundaries and restrictions that 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 I've inherited, yeah. and that frankly a lot of leaders don't even want to be there, but they don't know how to change it because of the egalitarian church polity that, that they've inherited.
0: So do you think it's more frustration with the system of the religious institution or your own personal deconstructing of your understanding of God?
1: For me personally, it's a bit of both. Um, I mean, here's a really challenging question that I've asked myself, Luke, and, and, and and I don't, I know the answer, but this was a, this was a question I've asked a lot of people and this, this gets to my own views of God, for example. Um, if God answers the prayers of Christians, then shouldn't Christians have fewer incidences of cancer than non-Christians? Okay. Shouldn't Christians be in fewer car wrecks than non-Christians? Shouldn't there be higher recovery rates for terminal illness among Christians and non-Christians? Right? I mean, the, the, these aren't hard stats. Yeah, no. Um, so I had to really think through my own view of God and who is God and what is God? And is God who we project him to be? Or is God just a, a great therapist that does more for us than we do for him? And so those types of big questions really confounded me. Um, and so that those questions, I think, came in parallel with frustration um, with the religious system at the same time and, and not being able to to really make an impact in the world. For me, uh, I think church became something that a group of people who are good people did once a week because they received something from it, mm-hmm. as opposed to really being a movement that was radically wanting to change their environment and their world.
0: Mm-hmm. So as you're trying to make sense of the, uh, if I can just call it like the suffering question, like why doesn't you know, Christiana, get get prayers that lead to less terminal cancer for kids and all that stuff. Right. Where where did you where are you right now on that? Uh, obviously, that's a question that would have been answered differently twenty years ago when you were my freshman Bible class teacher. But where how would you answer that now?
1: Well, I certainly don't see God as as somebody who's sitting up in the sky waiting for um, a Facebook post to get ten thousand prayer requests to answer <laughs> prayer. <laughs> right. And, and frankly, that drives me bonkers. It, it, when I see stuff like that, I'm like, who do you think God is? You know, God, God's going to listen to 10,000, but not 9,000. And if we just get enough people praying, you know, and it, it's this, this, this twisted warped view of God that, that I think I've really rejected. Um, I definitely would consider myself a universalist. Hmm. Um, I, I um, I think God is pure love, and I think the world is screwed up Mm -hmm. in a major way. Um, And I think God has equal regard for all people. Um, God is equally concerned about human suffering for non-believers as He is for believers. Mm -hmm. So at this stage, you know, I can only reconcile the contradiction in the prayer life of a of a believer and a non-believer by by seeing God as, as someone who is universally loving of all humans and universally broken by all human suffering. And at the end, I I really do believe that, that, uh, that all things will be reconciled and, um, and, and, and that we're all going to make it. Um, -hmm. I, I, my, my soteriology has definitely changed in that regard.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, obviously that, uh, that's a I mean, big one
1: for, I would point to like Richard Beck and others, um, you know, uh, in, in that regard, and the work that, that they've done on on Christian universalism as, as being good stuff. I mean, it's it's worthy to to consider.
0: And and that's where I was going to go with, because I know Beck has his universalism tied through Jesus, like that is the enabling force for this sort of universal redemption. Would you tie it right. the same way? He does? obviously, if you're co-signing what he's doing, that's it, that'd be a similar move that you're making.
1: Yeah, I, I think so. And I, and I think as we model Christ, um, I think we, uh, we, um, we personify what that ultimate redemption and reconciliation looks like. Um, I had a, uh, uh, this was an interesting aha moment and this occurred just recently for me in the last eight months, but I was talking to somebody at Pepperdine, a professor who I love and respect very much. And, um, he said, you know, the, the church has inherited positions on certain things that I, I, I just don't think Jesus was concerned about. Um, he said, uh, do, for example, the virgin birth question. He said, you know, it's only mentioned twice yep. in the New Testament. And if we discovered that Jesus was not born by a virgin, which his perception was was, was a, a, a patristic construction or a later construction in order to validate the divinity of Jesus, mm-hmm. he said, it, it, it wouldn't rock my faith, All Right. So you begin to deconstruct things like that, and it, it leaves you with a more purist view of God, in my view, um, that that's more whole and, and and more reconcilable to where we are today, as opposed to trying to kludge an image of God that we have into a, an inherited structure, that, hmm. that doesn't accommodate that image,
0: frankly. So do you think it'd be difficult, uh, obviously it's too difficult for your your current theological convictions to function and flourish in the system as it currently exists? Is that? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think there's a system that could, could allow your convictions to flourish? Um, I'm not saying like, Hey, is there a job that you want? I'm not saying that, but do you think your theological understanding of God and the way you see the world working, could that function within some sort of, you know, religious community?
1: Uh, yeah, but I, I would, yes, but I would go back to uh, a universalist perception, uh, a perspective rather, and say creation itself is a system, hmm. right? So when we talk about religious systems, uh, we don't want to limit that to um, a world religion. Uh, if creation itself is a system that God has designed, then my faith can flourish within that system.
0: Hmm. Okay, so tell me more about that. How can faith flourish in the system of creation outside of a quote-unquote church?
1: Well, I think Jesus modeled that. Uh, I I, I think Jesus modeled what it meant to have a flourishing faith within creation, uh, where his faith was not tied or anchored to the temple, uh, where his ministry found itself in creation, um, where he assembled uh, uh, for meals with his friends, um, where he spent his life's work helping others, to minister and heal. I mean, what, what Jesus did, is, as you well know, is he turned the system on his head. Mm-hmm. Um, he deconstructed the system. Um, Barna and Viola's book, Pagan Christianity, I think, paints a really good picture of that, where they say, look, Jesus came uh, into a system that was focused on temples, priests, and sacrifices. Um, he's now said that the human body, the imago dei, is the temple, is the priest, and is the sacrifice. Now, the last 1,500 years, what we've done is we've rejected that. Instead, we've reconstructed temples, priests, and sacrifices.
0: Hmm.
1: We, we, we've done exactly what Jesus came to abolish. And we attend a temple weekly. We make our tithing sacrifices, and we've hired a clergy. When, and that's become the system. When the system that Jesus operated in was the, the system of creation that reflects the image of God, um, in which he could flourish, and his followers could flourish. And so, when I'm thinking about systems, I'm thinking more universally as, as uh, as an image bearer of God operating within the divine creation. Uh, that itself, I think, is a system that 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 has evolved through the ingenuity and the creative artistic abilities of of a divine God.
0: Hmm. Okay. So let me ask one important question. Uh, the rest of them have been important, obviously. Um, don't you miss getting up on Sunday morning and having everyone like close their mouth and just listen to you talk for thirty minutes? Like, how no. do you feed your ego? <laughs> like, how do you find your self worth if it's not based on oh people just having to be quiet and listening to you?
1: Oh, <laughs>
0: T- uh, <laughs> are you gonna miss preaching?
1: Um, I do miss speaking, but I miss it for selfish reasons, right? And mm-hmm. again, this this is this is uh, this gets into. I think the integrity of preaching. Why do preachers preach? Yeah. Um, because I think if, if a lot of us are honest, um, buried within that is, is uh, it's an enjoyment of the attention, is the platform that we're giving. Um, and um, uh, that really, I think, was an issue for me because I have always had my critics so just as soon as I thought it was a fantastic sermon, I would get an email on a Monday morning or, or a covert response by someone later, and I was like, all right, yeah, they, they thought it sucked. And uh, uh, Don't you know, worry. I, I'll I guess st- it wasn't a home run.
0: I'll still send you those emails, Rich, every week. I'll just <laughs> do that based on other stuff.
1: <laughs> well, here, here's one thing to, to think about as well for, for any preachers who are listening, and, and I have to ask myself this question uh, as well. What role does your ego play in your preaching, and what role does loyalty play in your preaching? And is it really a calling, or are you doing it because it's a job and it's easy, and you you, you get to um, coast by and uh, and 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 you get to coast by on your abilities? What what kind of discipline are you really investing in in your preaching, or are you just throwing something together at the last minute, and pulling a few funny stories together, and including something together because you've got the ability to do that, and and you sell it to the church? Um, I think that's an integrity issue uh-huh. that. That a lot of ministers struggle with. Um,
0: how, would you, how would you help them see that ego is motivating their preaching? Is there like a, a litmus test for them to like self evaluate the, the ego's participation in their work?
1: Uh, that's a good question. I think one of the ways you can do that is when you're actually in the process of sermon writing, sermon construction, what questions are you asking yourself? While while you're right. at your desk, in your study, what questions are you asking yourself? Um, and if most of the questions you're asking yourself is, oh, are they going to like this? Um, uh, if I make this joke or if I say it that way, they're really going to love that. And, um, if those are, are, are the, the dominant questions that you're asking while you're constructing a sermon, then your ego may uh, at best be sharing space with the original intent of preaching as opposed to really trying to sit at the feet of the text and and see what God's saying and then step back and say, how do I frame that in a relevant way and how do I reflect that in a relevant way? Um, But if a lot of the questions are more about self Mm -hmm. and the exercise of sermon construction, then then ego may play a role in that.
0: Yeah. No, no, that's, I think it's a good question. I think it's very easy to want to write a sermon that's going to "quote unquote" do well instead of one that's yeah. being authentic to what it should be. And
1: you know, when I when I was a freshman at Harding, Luke, um, I was invited to speak in chapel, uh, and I was an Australian kid. Uh, the Church of Christ numbered a total of maybe two thousand people in Australia. Mm-hmm. I got a chance to stand up in Benson Auditorium and talk to three thousand five hundred people, mm-hmm. and um, making them laugh, having three thousand five hundred people laugh was like mental cocaine. Yeah, It was fantastic. Um, and, and being able to do that while also inspiring and encouraging them, I got something from that. Yeah. There, there was something very appealing. And then seeing people across campus all day slapping in the back and saying, man, that was awesome. You were like Jeff Walling. Um, <laughs> there, there was something very appealing about that. And if we don't keep that in check, that that can, that can be a dominant motivation for us to stay Doing what we're doing as opposed to perhaps a more um, ethical reason to be preaching.
0: Yeah, I know for sure. Um, so, as a f- freshman at Harding, you got to uh, speak at chapel. I don't, I don't know what that's like because um, I was <laughs> uh, fresh to You that. never spoke in but chapel? I thought you no, spoke in chapel. No, that's why I left. I said, I'm taking my talents to Abilene because they'll respect yeah, them more. No, were that's
1: buried in Circe.
0: Yeah, that no, uh yeah, I think the like preacher boy, preacher girl who gets up and preaches and has like, Oh, that's so cute, that's wonderful that you're a preacher and you can get addicted to that very easily. And I think the adrenaline rush of being in front of thirty five hundred people, um, it, it can have that same sort of effect. So the um so I talked to Brian McLaren, like, two years ago, and he had this very, like, wise insight that you have often this natural progression of conservative, evangelical, becomes, like, disenchanted with the evangelical church. They said they're leaving this church, and where do they go? They end up at, like, some mainline, mainline church. And so, you know, Rachel Held Evans' book, um, for her most recent, it's like searching for Sunday or something. You know, she was an evangelical, she left it, and now she finds church in this uh, mainline church, right? Um, I was expecting to hear that somewhere in this story, but that's not at all what you've said. Um, often you find disenfranchised evangelicals who are like, you know what, I'm going to go to a mainline church, and that's where I'm going to fit in. Was that ever part of the equation, thinking process for you?
1: No, because even when I was preaching in Chicago, um, I would cancel members who would leave our church because they're frustrated with something. I would say, look, you're trading one checklist for another checklist. Mm-hmm. Uh, denominationalism, as it's found, I think, in, in North America, um, are, are, are various uh, c- could be seen as various verses of the same song. Hmm. Right. Um, so uh, every denomination is singing the same song but they're reflecting a different verse of that same song.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So if, if, you, if your questions about religion are more theological, ontological, universalist, then you're concerned less with denominational distinctions and what separates one denomination from another. And you're more concerned with uh, the, the premises on which denominationalism is actually built. So, uh, for me, it wasn't i'm frustrated with this denomination, so now i 'm going to go to a big evangelical uh, i i uh, gosh i wouldn't even know how to describe myself but i i, I find I find that uh, uh, much of evangelicalism today is still in my heart is still left wanting because what I see happening on a Sunday morning doesn't translate in a powerful way, at least for me personally, to, to what ought to be happening Monday through Saturday. Yeah. It does it, it's not an issue of worship style or preaching or it's it's the um, I think it's the selfish nature of Christianity that we've inherited where we go on a Sunday t- to get something from it when I think that's actually backwards. I don't I don't think that's what Christ taught or at least not what he emulated.
0: Yeah. So in your, your Facebook post, you, s- you express something about the best way, uh, to participate in the faith of Jesus is at a table with friends or something like that. Um, yeah. is, is that how you see community functioning for you now? In- yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, it's, it, it doesn't mean that, that we, we won't stay, uh, connected to church. Uh, we're still connected by Caritas University church, which is a great church. And, and frankly if um, i mean i 'm stepping aside just to give that church time to to start a new search, but we 're still in the membership role there and mm-hmm. uh, and um, uh, and if we did go back to, to church, then I would probably attend there uh, because i I give I put very little stock in religious services, so whether I go to University Church of Christ or whether I go to Calvary or whether I go to reality LA to to me, that's not what's really important. It's the relationships there that are the most important. Mm -hmm. So if I did step back into, to a religious structure, I, I would, you know, I wouldn't have a problem doing that. But ideally for me, it's gathering with a group of friends, um, sharing a, a great meal, um, drinking good wine, eating good bread, um, talking about our faith, encouraging one another, um, to to live more intentionally. Uh, That that to me is authentic community. And I think we've lost that thanks to Constantine, which is another discussion, but I think we've lost that in our church because of the way that we structure what we do.
0: Yeah. So it's good that you're still connected. I'm I'm glad that you still have got relationships at uh, the Malibu Church of Christ, um, specifically because next July they might need a guest speaker for Four weeks or something, and you can give him my name uh, <laughs> just so I can get a vacation out there. Um, so, this progression of like y- you were Church of Christ, uh, like rock star, Harding, like, you know, poster boy. Now you're stepping away from church. Now, church sounds like a, a-, a meal uh, with good food, good wine that's, I'm, I'm sure, non alcoholic, and uh, good conversation. It-, it sounds like, in a lot of ways, like, the way that Rob Bell has since described his community since he's left Mars Hill. Yeah. And one of the critiques of Rob is like, well, what do you – okay, so that's that's community for you, but what about the poor? What about uh, the people who aren't like you? What about the people who wouldn't naturally be your friends if it wasn't for the fact that you show up at the same place every Sunday morning and it forces you to encounter people like that? Uh, yeah. When I'm hearing you talk about working on the housing <clears throat> issue in, in Southern California, it sounds like that's a way to bump into people that probably wouldn't uh, be in your day-to-day interaction. W- what are some other ways that you see that – that happened in your life this way?
1: Yeah. Um, I've, I've got interests uh, obviously in, in that particular issue and, and since I started this journey um, away from the church I've spent tons of time. I went down and met with Andy Bales who is uh, president of um, uh, the, uh, the LA Union Rescue Mission for example, largest rescue mission in the country. Um, I, I met with John uh, Merciari, who is uh, head of uh, Ocean Park uh, Community Center in Santa Monica. So I've, I've been doing a lot of networking with um, uh, men and women in that nonprofit sector in an attempt to define what this next season looks like for me professionally. And are there ways for me to marry an interest in real estate with an interest in homelessness, uh, with an interest in social advocacy? um, because I, I want to live intentionally with what I'm doing. Uh, I don't think ministry ends because you're not a minister. Uh, I, I, really believe that that as humans, we all minister in our own capacities. Uh, I also love writing. Um, Heather and I are good friends with, uh, um, two people happen to be married. One is the head of talent at, uh, William Morris entertainment, mm-hmm. uh, who, which is the largest, uh, talent agency on the planet. And, um, her husband is a uh, entertainment attorney, and um, and they've said, "Rich, you, you know, you, you need to do some writing. Um, why don't you consider thinking about ways to uh, encourage people, even in the entertainment industry, to be more deliberate in the way that they write um, mm. as well? Um, could 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 I work? And this is a, a question that I'm answering right now. But could I work in partnership with?" Uh, writers to say, hey, if, if if you frame this character in this way, or if you frame uh, this scene in this way, it could elicit within the audience's mind questions about their own um, acts of service in the community, uh, questions that, uh, that we need to raise about a social issue that come from somebody who has a faith background and who's still, I think, a person of faith, but May be missed if you don't have that background. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm also exploring that as, mm-hmm. as, as well and um,
0: seeing where that goes. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, just because you know them at William Morris Talent Agency, um, I don't know if you, you've seen any of my stand up stuff that I've been talking about, but uh, I could give you a tape that you could maybe pass on to them. I think they would really. A tape? Yeah. Send me a tape. Yeah, I'll send you a tape. Okay, so <laughs> That's great. I, I love like, your creativity on ways that you can continue to do ministry, uh, continue to have a positive impact on people, ways that you can continue to bring light into darkness. Like, I love that creativity. It's very exciting to me. You're a parent also. You've got three kids, is that right? Four. Four? Man, there's a lot of them. That's too many. Yeah. Uh, You have four kids. And what is it like for you guys as parents trying to think about instilling virtue, faith in them when they're not in the same sort of structure of a church that often helps in a lot of ways instill faith in your kids?
1: Yeah. Well, Heather and I are big volunteers. So we we volunteer um, at a number of area um, homeless shelters. Um, I volunteer a lot in LA um, uh, at homeless shelters down there. We'll take our kids with us as we do that. Um, Annie, my 18-year-old, who just graduated— from high school is leaving for a gap year. She's going to spend nine months fighting human trafficking in Guatemala, Malawi, and uh, Thailand uh, in the next nine months. Um, so the family is supporting her in in that responsibility, in that task. Um, you know, we've uh, we we sponsor four kids in Haiti. We have done for the last sixteen years um, as well. So we we try to model, I think, as parents what active faith looks like we we don't do that perfectly but uh we ask our kids and we ask ourselves how are we making a difference in the world what do what we do here's, here's one example my my good friend scott um who's a big developer here he owns three and a half thousand <clears throat> units affordable housing units uh, anytime he's with me he'll see me stop and um and if there's someone on the side of the 101 or the 405 asking for money i always give him money i always give him money uh Um, And I did that because I was challenged by a friend once as I was walking into Ralph's. This guy wanted money. And I said to my friend, you know, he's only going to use it on alcohol. And we're on our way to buy beer. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So I was like, you idiot. What what a hypocrite. You're doing the same thing. So we're doing exactly the same thing. I was like, oh, I'm not going to give it to him. He's (laughs) going to go and buy beer. I was like, wait, we're we're we're, going to buy beer. Um, So I've always... Given him money and, and Scott is, is extremely wealthy, multi-millionaire, and he's never done that. But he called me the other day, so excited in The car. he's like rich, he said, I was in Lancaster. He said, and this guy came up to me and he said, uh, he said, you don't remember me. I don't think he said, but you gave me $10 uh, about two months ago. I just want to thank you for that. And Scott said, I've got to be honest. I don't remember you at all. He's like, yeah, I, I know you don't, but I just want to thank you. Scott said, well, <clears throat> what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm living in my car right now. Um, and Scott said, he spent an hour with him, called one of his managers, got him into full-time housing, and then found him a part-time job at one of the stores in Lancaster. And he called me to tell me, he was wow, like, it works. Yeah. It, it works, you know? That's awesome. So,
0: so your kids see I, I, I guess, that, and, and that's been yeah. modeled for them, and so it's going to be ingrained that way. One of the things that, <clears throat> that stuck with me for since I heard it is, you know, Richard Rohr, uh, Franciscan Priest, you know Rohr? Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. Him it, he was talking about the benefits of growing up conservative because it gives parameters that eventually you're going to let those parameters down but at first it gives you bumpers to stay in. And so I'm always questioning like what does it mean to create those bumpers as a way to to safeguard and start with your kids. It sounds like your kids are not five, six, and seven years old. You've got kids who are you know, out, of, out yeah. of school. You've got one uh, who's out of high school already. So it, it seems like they're farther along in their development so that it can be more forward-thinking parenting and not just like the basics, right? Right. Yeah. Okay, Yeah. so next question. What would um, my freshman Bible class teacher from Harding University, Rich Little, say to this person right now if he was doing the interview? What would your old self 20 years ago say to you right now?
1: Uh, I would say, you know, you're going to hell. <laughs> you know that, right? <laughs> you, you, you're on the express train to hell, buddy. You've, you've left the faith. You've, you've walked away from church. Um, <clears throat> you're a fall away. Uh, you're unfaithful. Uh, because I, I think, unfortunately, my lens then was a really judgmental lens. And I, I interpreted and judged others based on, you know, based on a fairly narrow view of, of what it meant to be faithful and um and but I get that, Luke, you know, Grace has to work both ways. it, it can't just work to the left, it 's got to work to the right. When I was in ministry in Chicago, I tried to get a lot of the the, the, the preachers from our denomination together, and we we met at a church building. Uh, for a little while where we could get the non-institutional, the African-American churches from downtown and the mainline church preachers together. And and it bothered some, but I said, look, uh, you you don't walk away from ministry mad and negative at the world. You, You can't do that because your own journey is a model for the grace that people have had on you and the grace that God has had on you. And if anything, you've got to reciprocate that to other people, and it's not me looking back at at the church or looking back at other people and say, "Well, they're ignorant." You know, I'm, I'm so I'm so progressive, and and I now have the correct view. Um, not at all. It's a journey, um, and and I know in five or ten years' time, I'll be looking back at this time saying, "You know, you had this right, but you had it wrong." Yeah. Um, and so I, I think we have to encourage people to take the journeys that they need to, and there are thousands of phenomenal churches that are helping people and and those members who are there are being blessed by it and and that's what that's how their faith is being expressed in a healthy way right now Man, don't leave do it but pay attention to your head and heart and your journey and and be honest with it because you never want to be in a place where you're being dishonest with your own journey
0: um so what one thing do you wish you would have known 20 years ago that you know now
1: just how much bigger God is than He was then. I, I think another aha for me mm-hmm. is in recognizing that wherever truth is, God is. And I didn't see God really outside of my box. Um, but if you really see God in everything, if if you if you see God in you know, in, in the flowers along the path, if you see God in, you know, the animals that you keep. Um, there's a great little book called um, On God and Dogs, um, which is a, a, a great little book. If you're a dog, we've got two wives. You know, you, you begin to see God and, and the fingerprints of God in so many things. And it really, I think, expands your, your, your view of God. I wish I'd known that then. Um, I had, a, I had a very religious box for God, but not a very spiritual understanding of God's presence in creation.
0: Hmm. That's good. That's good. Well, Rich, thanks for the time. Appreciate you talking about this. Um, so one day we can imagine seeing you like doing real estate, teaching universities yep. and yeah, still. still not wearing shoes. <laughs> Is that still going to be your thing? Can you do that? Still in this barefoot. Next? Yep. Doesn't I have them on right now. That's what I was hoping to see. Thanks Luke. Appreciate you, buddy. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now a jerk.